0: Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And
1: this is... <laughs> 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 Said to me, you don't have to change it. <laughs> I, all right. I got confused. I thought I was you.
2: Keep going. Keep going.
1: Keep going. We're not stopping. Go, We're not stopping. It no. And this is Jasmine I mean, I just, Singer. I just, I'm, I'm Jasmine Singer. You're Marianne Sullivan. I'm sure of that. My God, are we? We're just gonna do this. We're not starting over. No, we're just gonna go. (laughs) You're Marianne. I'm Jack. If you haven't
0: haven't already turned this off because you think we're crazy, we're thrilled that you're there. (laughs) Because and I, I'm, I'm surprised that you're still there, and. It's a particularly exciting week because I have a particularly exciting interview. I'm interviewing Alexandra Horowitz. She's a best-selling author.
1: Alexandra Horowitz. Her name is Alexandra Horowitz.
0: You promised me you weren't going to do that.
1: Sorry, it's late at night. I'm because I
0: asked her that on. I asked her that on the interview. It's the first thing I asked her. Does everybody do that? You can wait till the interview to find out how she responded. Hmm. Uh, the first, I, I just keep doing it over and over again. It's driving me crazy. Anyway, yeah. Aside from having that name that rhymes with Alexander Hamilton, or maybe it doesn't rhyme, but it 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 scans like Alexander yes. Hamilton. She is a best-selling author and she writes about your favorite, well, my favorite thing, probably your favorite thing in the entire world. That's dogs. And she just says amazing things. I mean, she's a scientist. She has amazing things to say about dogs. Her most recent book is Our Dogs Ourselves. It's so good.
1: And this week on the bonus segment, we'll be hearing more of Marianne's conversation with Alexandra Horowitz. And as always, if you're a Flock member, you'll get a link to the bonus segment in your email the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up, or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock yet, and you can swing it, you can join for ten dollars a month at ourhenhouse.org/slash/donate.
0: And uh, as a special thank you, of course, we're doing our Flock Friday Zoom calls. And that's at 4 p.m. Eastern every single week. And sometimes we just have the flock and we, we shoot the shit. And sometimes we have some special guests. Recently, we had Lindsay Ryder, who is a flock member. She's also the founder of the Overture Institute. And she spoke with us all about the power of awareness and how to harness mindfulness and why vegans are kind of ahead of the game. Though sometimes I don't feel like I am at all, but uh, it was reassuring to hear. I do have some advantages because at least I'm not in denial about what's happening to animals. So if you're a member of the flock, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates. I really hope you can join us. The more the merrier. You can also write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org.
1: Yeah, that was a great one. And I, took, I, I actually joined that Flock Friday from the road from inside the RV. And I'm still inside the RV. This is a big country. So apologies again for my sound, but it will be back to normal next week because I will have landed in New York next week. But I'm on, currently I'm on day eight of my trip, or day nine, day nine. Yeah, day nine. I am set to go to my new apartment tomorrow in, in upstate New York, not far from you. This is a very exciting moment for me because it's been a long trip. and. I've actually managed to get some great vegan grub along the way, despite the fact that I'm doing a weird sort of road quarantine <laughs> and not going into any places. But, so you're
0: doing you're stopping at places that have curbside.
1: Yeah, and only a few because the RV has a giant. What, why did I say giant? Our, the RV has like a teeny tiny little kitchen with a giant <laughs> amount of ve- vegan food. That's what I meant. And so before I left, uh, I went to Besties, which I, I think you recall. I, I'm very much I'm very much mourning the fact that I won't live near Besties Vegan Market in LA anymore. But I did get to go to Nooch Vegan Grocery Store in Denver and that was pretty awesome because they loaded up there on lots of local brands i think i mentioned that last week and then i went through to kansas city and saw some family and one of my family members brought me a latte and muffins from mud pie which i Oh, i love. remember
0: mud pie i've been there yeah. i've never been Yeah i've never been to right. Denver for that matter
1: Oh, really? Yeah, it's a cool town. And what actually I did a book reading at Mud Pie in 2016. And it was I was really sad that I wasn't going to be able to go. So I this time, but I, I appreciated the surprise latte. And I even I got to go to two restaurants. Restaurants along the way that were during, doing curbside. They actually brought it like outside and like near the RV. That's, but what, I, curbside uh, it, it,
0: that's what curbside is. <laughs>
1: that's true. In Indianapolis, I went to the 10th Street Diner and ate in the RV in the parking lot. And in uh, right outside of Columbus, I went to Yee's Asian Vegan Kitchen, which was phenomenal. In fact, I just had leftovers for dinner. It's been great. I mean, it, it's, it's definitely... Uh, a weird trip because of the fact that like we live in such a heightened political climate right now. Like really, just <laughs> lots of like lots of sort of neighborly lawn fights with like which presidential candidate is on their like the sign on their lawn. It's intense. Like sometimes you see every other house has a different one and it's like, oh, I wonder what it's like to yeah. live there right now. Feelings you know, running
0: high.
1: I mean, I yeah, guess, you
0: know, there's always been like, Obviously that's always existed, you know, different people rooting for different candidates, but yeah, this year feels pretty different. I just ordered my, my yard signs. I I always forget because I lived in an apartment almost my whole life and you can't use yard signs in an apartment. So I always forget about them, but I just ordered them.
1: Mm, well, that's cool. Yeah, it actually has made me wonder because every now and then you pass a house that doesn't have a sign and I wonder like what's going on for that person. Like, do they do they feel Probably like, like they, me, they forgot or, or they're making us, they just don't want to be out there, but kind of by not being out there, they're out there because it, like, they're the ones I'm noticing. And it makes me think a little bit of veganism, like, you know, by not making a choice, you're making a choice by not making a choice to be vegan. You're making a choice to eat animals. So it's like by not making the compassionate choice you're making the violent one. I could go on and on but I'm not going to, but you probably know what I'm talking about. I've heard about it. <laughs> so I I do have a, a fair amount of mosquito bites, which is a funny thing for an animal rights activist because you know those those fuckers like to eat my like yeah. they, I mean like it's making me. Ah, it's making I've always me said that
0: that you you can fight back about animals who actually suck blood. Uh. <laughs> I don't yeah. think you get to hate them, you know, but I do, but I don't think that's right.
1: Well, we all have our flaws. We shouldn't I mean, them. I No. It's just I, they, know, they're just,
0: you know, they were born mosquitoes. They're just getting by. On my
1: blood. <laughs> yeah.
0: Exactly. Anyway,
1: I know you've been going through this too, because there's little m- mousies in your walls.
0: Yeah. I think I've talked about this before, but I do have mice in the house. I don't hate them at all. In fact, I am Paralyzed by the fact that I worry about them and feel sorry for them. I do have it. I think set up. They, they cannot get upstairs. They're just in the basement, and I do feel bad. Like, like sometimes I hear them scratching, and and I can, you know, I I bang and and carry on, and I have all the cupboards <laughs> closed and all of, you know everything sealed up. But I feel bad for them. I'm thinking, oh, they're hungry. That's why they want to get up here, and they're so friggin' smart. Like. Like they just figure out all these different ways. Anyway, I struggle with that so much. I can't, obviously yeah. can't have them killed. I even worry about putting them, you know, capturing them and putting them out. But I think if you're going to do that, now is the time to do it. You can't do it in the middle of winter because then they'll die for sure. Yeah. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I'm an idiot. Like, and if I told the rest of the world any of this, they would think I was definitely an idiot. But what are you going to do? Some animal rights makes us crazy sometimes or makes us appear crazy. Like we don't know how to manage the world. Well, I can have mice makes... running around the house. I mean, that's not okay either. It just isn't. No.
1: But it also makes us able to handle the world with like ethical consistency and with like a deeper layer of. I don't of feel like I'm at all even, re-
0: even remotely able to handle the world right now. I'm. You're
1: I, you're in a low place. I am so... in a bad.
0: I'm in a bad spot right now. I'm just admitting it to everyone, even though we're supposed to be indefatigably, indefatigably positive. positive yeah it's right like it's it's getting to me and i know that we are always coping with great darkness as you know as people who have acknowledged what's happening to animals we live with that and we learn how to cope with it but right now the darkness is between the pandemic and the election and the animals and and mm-hmm. like the the huge thing looming over all of it climate like what the fuck? I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I'm sorry, it's everybody. It's getting to me. No. But if it's getting to you too, and I can't imagine there aren't some of you out there who are like having having those difficult moments. Just well, how could alone. it not be? And we all we all do pass into a more I don't know whether a more positive place, but at least like you know letting go of the despair and and taking hold of some action and moving forward and whatever.
1: And you've always been you've always had a hard time at the end of summer. It's like this weird sort of Marianne specific seasonal affective disorder kind of thing. Like for a lot of people. Of seasons, yeah. And yeah, but for I a lot love
0: people, fall, fall is my favorite season in the world. And I live in a place where fall is, well, I think fall is lovely everywhere, but it really is very lovely in upstate New York. Mm-hmm. But, and I love fall. Um, yeah. But yeah, the change of seasons does like, yeah. Make me moody. So there's that too. Aside from the fact of all of the things that are wrong, uh, there's a change yeah. of seasons. It's also, I mean, to be honest, you know, my little dog is very frail and yeah. that's a little bit of a struggle too. Of also, I have to to another human in person and <laughs> that's not true. I do sometimes speak to humans in person, but not a lot of them. I mean, even for me, uh, the introvert. Mm-hmm. You know, I do like to make contact with the occasional human.
1: Well, you're going to see me tomorrow. I'm an occasional human.
0: Yeah, occasionally.
1: (laughs) Actually, we wrote our pod rules, which is good because you know we feel strongly about having those pod rules and making sure that everyone's on the same page in terms of like the safety precautions we're using. And I feel really good about it. I'm super excited about seeing you and Rose. I know. Our sweet Rose is is nearing the end, but she is she is still very much here, and she's living every day as if it's the last day of her life. And in a way, that's super inspiring to me too, to just you know seize the moment. I mean, <laughs> does anybody seize the moment more oh, than Rose? I, Rose is I
0: definitely an inspiration. She never seems to notice that you know things have gone a little bit awry, and and. I mean, I guess she notices that she can't see and she can't hear. Well, she can see a little bit, but, but, but she just says, okay, this is where we are today. Let's go. Yeah. Let's have, breakfast. She's a, she's amazing. Let's have a treat. Let's have a biscuit. I
1: just, if we didn't already have a podcast, I would tell you that we should start a podcast and call it pod rules. Cause is that not the best name for a podcast yeah. during no, quarantine? That's
0: pretty good. Maybe we should start a yeah. podcast.
1: Oh yeah, and that sounds like a great idea. Uh,
0: <laughs> I know an awful lot
1: of people who seem
0: to think that you don't have to wear masks outside.
1: What is that?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I mean, no, I think what it is is that it is much less dangerous. I mean, everybody agrees it's much less dangerous to wear masks outside, but it's not a thing. Like it's like there's no like you're still supposed to wear all of the pronouncements about it is that you're supposed to wear masks all the time, and I'm sure some people listening to this, you know have different sets of roles but yeah I'm old I like to wear my mask all the time I don't see what the big deal is you know there are people I like who I uh yeah it makes me a little uncomfortable and close up not even six feet away just like well we're outside what is that I
1: well no I mean that I can understand if you're far away I can understand if like you're taking a walk and there's no one around and you put it down or something. Oh, I
0: do that all the time because, yeah, you know, yeah. I can go for, I can walk for a mile and not see another person. I'm not going to keep my mask on all the time. I recently got like eyeglass, you know, those those things you put around your neck for eyeglasses and attached it to my mask. So it's always right there other than right. having to like, you know, keep it like around my neck or something. So yeah I, can, no, yeah, I think that's fun. No, I mean, when you're like sitting and having a conversation with somebody, it's like, well, it's outside. Uh, I don't yeah. know. Anyway, I don't want to go on and on. I feel like every week we talk about like our our personal opinions about masks, which you know I'm sure people have different opinions. So yeah, I don't want to criticize well. anybody. I just it's just another f- source of contention, which uh, oh, yeah. you know it's just it's just one more fucking thing.
1: <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I'm going to cheer you up. I really am. I I got you some like stuff at Nooch and yay and. I didn't like know that. I, yeah. Exciting. And I mean, I just, am well, excited about going hiking with you and we can do, we can do our head house in person sometimes. And like, there's a drive-in movie theater and I liked drive-in movie theaters before they came back and were all the rage. You know, let's just have fun and seize the moment like Rose, because these are times when we need to practice community care, which I talked about last week when the brilliant Lindsay Ryder joined us, as you mentioned, for Flock Fridays. And I think that community care, which is something that Patrice Cullors, who's the founder, a founder of Black Lives Matter, she uh, she coined this term. And I think that community care can really be a political act. And I got you. I'm going to start singing, I got you, babe. I got you, babe. Bum, bum. Alexandra Horowitz. So,
0: before we go, sandwich. before we move to Alexandra, I do want to make one announcement because yes. I don't know whether people listened. A couple of weeks ago, if you haven't, you have to go back and listen to my interview with Katrin Harriman. So um, good. And yeah, and it, she is a scientist and she was talking about you know, a, lot, a lot of progress that's been made in getting animals out of science, Um, you know, and a lot of problems that still exist. But anyway, she had mentioned at the time that she was doing this webinar and with a whole variety of very talented speakers. It's called Animals, Climate Change and Global Health. And it wasn't out yet. And now it has come out. So I just thought I'd tell people about it because obviously this is a pretty big issue. And they've brought together experts from you know, kind of a range of disciplines to um, mm-hmm. talk about uh, all of these topics. There are six sessions and two of them have been published so far. The first one is Animals, Pandemics, and Global Health. And the second one is COVID-19 Research with or without animals. So really, really important stuff here and uh, the future ones will be equally uh, important and fascinating so if you're interested in that go to animalsclimatehealth.com and cool. and you you can uh you can hook up with that
1: well we also want to hook you up with some businesses. oh and businesses.
0: i i should i i, sh- I don't think i mentioned uh, these are free so oh yeah yeah
1: yeah cool well the vegan businesses is something that we are very passionate to support We always have been, but since COVID, we've really been trying to step this up by making some announcements that highlight some vegan businesses that we heard about or that we personally love. And if you are interested in having an announcement about your vegan business or someone's that you know, or one that you love to patronize, or one that you know is struggling, go to ourhenhouse.org slash veganbusinesses and fill out the form. I know I just mentioned a few of the ones that I loved when I was traveling around. So uh, those will will definitely scratch the itch. Oh God, I said itch and I have these mosquito bites. Why did I do that? But we do also want to highlight at least one Black-owned vegan business each week. So I'm going to point you to, on Instagram, this. (laughs) How do you
0: pronounce this?
1: Um, I think it's supposed to be like quality control. Yeah, I do too. No, I think that's
0: probably how you pronounce it. It's just yeah, but really
1: there's funny. no there's no vowels in there and controls with a K. So it is Q L T Y K N T R L. You're going to look them up on Instagram. We'll link to it. Our incredible Jocelyn Martinez, who helps us out with the production of the podcast, will put this in our notes on the show notes as well as on Instagram. So this is a clothing brand, and I'm excited about getting to my apartment, partly because I have a shirt waiting for me from them, because they're a vegan, conscious streetwear company, and they make some seriously amazing, amazing shirts. They have a shirt that that, that is honoring the late Regan Russell, which I think is really cool. She's the activist who was recently killed by a slaughterhouse truck when she was at a pig vigil in Canada. They have Black Lives Matter shirts. They have these really cool shirts that I, I love that are basically like a graphic of a bunch of videos stacked up against each other of like all of these movies that help people go vegan, like Cowspiracy and Dominion and Earthlings. And What the health, I really want that shirt. You could also download that as wallpaper for your phone as well. So it just goes on and on, and it's it's really cool stuff. So again, it's quality control, and it's Q-L-T-Y-K-N-T-R-L, and you're going to want to follow them on Facebook. So I'm excited to get to the interview with Alexandra Horowitz, who is the author of the New York Times bestsellers Inside of a Dog, What Dogs See, Smell, and Know and being a dog, following the dog into a world of smell. Her latest book, Our Dogs, Ourselves, was published last September. She is a senior research fellow at Bernard College, where her dog, Cognition Lab, performs research on a wide range of topics, including emotions and play behavior of dogs. And she will be joining Marianne right after this. change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Welcome to our hen house, Alexandra.
0: Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to have you. I saw you speak. How long ago was that? It was, it was, uh, it, was it seems like it was a lifetime ago. I know, 25 years ago or something.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Early. I think- it was about six months ago.
0: Yeah, probably around that. And I was fascinated with what you have to say about dogs and what you have to say about animals in general. So happy that you agreed to join us. And before I start, I just want to make two comments or questions on names. First is, this is just such an annoying question, but does everybody sing your name to the to the tune of Alexander Hamilton now?
2: Wait. Or is that, that just again? me?
0: <laughs> does everybody say Alexander Horowitz- your name is Alex. Apparently <laughs> not. That's probably no, just no, I've, me. I've never heard that before. <laughs> oh my God. It's like, I've been singing your name around the house for days. Wow. And my second, well, this is really a comment on names. I had a Finnegan as well. Uh, a beloved, beloved Finnegan, the smartest dog I ever met. So I feel this, this makes us somehow related because of course, one of your dogs who you speak about in your books is is Finnegan.
2: And right so, here next to me right now. So we have a kinship. Aw,
0: nice, nice. All right. So let's get to more uh, <laughs> more serious topics. And this this might seem like an obvious question to most of our listeners because your work sounds pretty idyllic. You like pay attention to dogs for a living. But as a scientist, why did you set out to focus on dogs? I have always heard that that dogs are incredibly understudied. They're not considered a serious subject.
2: That's exactly what it was like when I started studying dogs. Um, I think that's changing somewhat, although, I don't know, academically, we have a mix of kind of old school psychologists and researchers and newer, younger ones. And so there's still some bias, I think, residual bias that dogs are not interesting to study. I started studying dogs accidentally. I, I love dogs. I was concerned for dogs I lived within as a child growing up but i wasn't an advocate i wasn't i wasn't i just didn't think science was going to tell me more about dogs but in grad school i wound up really being excited that there was potentially an inroad to understanding animal mind through their behavior and i was especially interested in looking at play behavior and so you know so many animals play do what we would consider classic play but so few animals play right in front of you when you want to observe them playing. Um, And I lived with a dog at the time and I finally realized took me forever because I was a narrow-minded graduate student that that dogs would be a great subject. You know, I'd get a lot of data of their behavior during play and I'd get some insight into what they knew about each other's minds. So I had to spend then a, a lot of time arguing to my committee, to academics and justifying that I could study dogs, that they'd be interesting to study. And thank goodness they were open-minded, but they let me begin to study dogs. And then I just never stopped. They became more interesting than the theoretical question I had begun with.
0: Yeah. The stuff you talk about in your books is fascinating. A lot of it is stuff that I certainly didn't know. And basically what you do is like you do research on dogs, which people listening to this podcast might be gasping now and reaching to turn it off. <laughs> but, but but it it's just just tell us about how the dog cognition lab works, what it is, and how you do manage to find out so much about dogs and and really conduct deliberate experiments trying to find out specific things within an ethical framework.
2: Sure. Well, you know, my interest in dogs is as you know, other, people, right, as, as animals with lives of interest. And so my lab, although it's you know a, an animal lab, sounds like a scary place and often is for animals, but mine is just a place, a room where people who live with dogs can come with their dogs and participate in what are hopefully fun games for the dogs that they're gonna give us some information about what they know or how they see the world. And so they're little problem solving tasks or just choose between two smells of different quantity, for instance. And if a dog doesn't want to participate, then the dog doesn't participate. So it's entirely voluntary. You know, after half an hour, the dogs leave with their people. So I don't I don't feel like I'm constraining. I mean, maybe in the future, people will look at that and say there's it's involuntary to even live with dogs. Right. I feel like that's an interesting question. And therefore, you know, they're conscribed to go with the people everywhere. And that includes to places like dog cognition labs. But right now, I think it's just a place where they I can watch their behavior. And that's all my lab has ever studied is dog behavior. So sometimes it's kind of in the wild, you know, as I said, I started studying dog play and that was going to dog parks and watching dogs play together and then reviewing videotapes of those episodes very closely so that I could get some insight into how they were responding to each other. So it's that type of thing. And as I say, it's sort of puzzle creation, problem solving that I'll give dogs in a lab, usually using sort of normal things you'd find around the home. And sometimes we ask owners, people who live with dogs, to videotape certain interactions with their dogs. We've done dog human play studies where we just ask people to play ordinarily with their dogs. And then we code or analyze the videotapes to try to understand, you know, what are the consequences of play? What are the different types of play that people do with their dogs? So that's the kind of thing we do.
0: I mean, you study play and that's a really important aspect, but you also study a bunch of interesting things that really intrigued me. One of them is obviously something that we're all interested in dogs is how they smell uh, and what they smell and how how their world is so different than ours. Can you talk a little bit about what you've done in that area?
2: Sure. You know, I think what really got me interested in studying dogs qua dogs as opposed to sort of as a model for thinking about non-human animal minds was that beginning of appreciation that they were such olfactory creatures and that that meant that their world was kind of re-rendered through olfaction, that they're seeing the world through smell. So we've done a little bit of exploration in our lab about what they can perceive in smell and that includes sort of questions of whether they're recognizing their people, people they live with, via smell. So we did a study, for instance, in which we asked dog people to wear T-shirts overnight while they slept to kind of gather their odors. And then we presented the dogs with the T-shirts apart from the people. And first we just saw if they could distinguish the smell of their person from the smell of somebody new, from a stranger, and they can. They distinguish them. And then we also asked whether they could match the smell of their person with the sound of their person calling them. So me saying Finnegan, and then also presented with the smell of me or the smell of somebody else. And they seem to notice, they seem to be able to match my voice with my smell, which makes Hmm. perfect sense. You know, it, it absolutely aligns with what we think about our perceptual world. You know, if my son comes in the room, But he starts talking like a stranger, that's dissonance, doesn't make any sense to me. And even if I see that on a video, that wouldn't make sense to me. And I think what we're doing is beginning to explore how olfaction is an essential part of that for dogs.
0: Yeah, it it just never ends being interesting, what what goes on in their noses and trying to imagine what their world is like, which is, of course, is not imaginable, which is one of the problems in studying other animals. Like We can find out things, but it's hard to imagine their world. One of the things that you mentioned that you wanted to talk about on this interview was the umwelt of other animals. I had to go look up what that, (laughs) so I did. And for those listeners like me uh, who are not familiar with that world, can you explain what that means and how you go about studying
2: it? Well, it's really a kind of way of, first it's just a posture you take in imagining the worlds of other people, of other non-human animals it's a word coined by a fellow named Jakob van Uxkoll, who was a you know, early 20th century German psychologist. And he meant it to mean sort of worldview of the other, of the creature apart from oneself, what it's like to be them, what's in their bubble, what do they perceive and what's meaningful to them in their world. It also just means universe, I guess, this word in German. I'm not a German speaker. But what I liked about his use of it was it really was about that imagination you, you bring up, imagining yourself into a world which is not necessarily a human world, human-defined world, seeing what that other animal perceives and what's meaningful to that other animal and using that to make meaning of the animal's life. So I don't study Umfeld per se, except for that that's the posture I take in all of my, in all of my research. I'm interested in filling out a better picture of what is it like to be that dog? Um, What is it like to be any dog? But what do they perceive through smell, through sight? What's meaningful to them? What can they understand and know? And that's really different than the traditional cognitive science or psychological viewpoint, comparative psychological viewpoint, which is interested in non-human animals, but only insofar as they compare to us, right? We're of superior intelligence, the sort of model goes, let's see if any other animals match us. Let's see if they Mm -hmm. have communication or language. Let's see if they have a theory of mind or intentionality. And if so, we can claim them, you know, of superior intelligence. Instead of that, it's saying like, you know what, we're just one framework for perceiving the world. Parallel to that are other frameworks. And if I want to understand another species, I have to start to understand their framework, their way of seeing the world.
0: I really love that. I, lo- I just, now I love that word. Mm. I'm going to use it. I will use it before the week is done. I promise you. <laughs> One of the things, I mean, we, we were talking about perception and their smell and how that's such an important thing, but you also talk a lot about their emotional life and how bad we are at understanding their emotions. So how bad are we and how, how do we get better?
2: The funny thing is all we really have to go on is dogs' behavior, right? So we have to make inferences from how dogs act to what their experience is like. And because we come from an anthropocentric viewpoint of necessity, we assume that the world is just like we experience it and more or less like that for other people with some subtle differences. We also extrapolate and imagine it's like that for other animals. And emotions is one of these places. We want to say that dogs or other animals who are close to us especially, have all the this exact same range of emotional experiences as we do. And, and so I did a little study actually on one of these emotional experiences. It was of guilt. I got very interested at some point early in studying dogs in all this language we put on dogs ordinarily just by living with dogs about what their experiences are. You know he's proud, she feels sorry that she did that, et cetera. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what, how do we know that? That's all sort of empirical questions. And I can try to start to ask you know, in research if we can find out the answer versus just assuming. And I think in many cases, our inferences to their emotional experience based on their behavior is a, is a leap and might even be wrong. In the case of the guilty look, this look that dogs sometimes give I don't know if you're familiar with this look where they kind of-
0: Oh, I'm totally familiar with yes. it. Yes, <laughs> <Like, laughs> so like, of course. expression.
2: Yes. Yes. And it really looks like guilt, like they've done something wrong. And in fact, sometimes it appears they maybe have done something that we would define as wrong in the house, right? They ate my shoe or they got into yeah. the garbage. or. But as it turns out, when I looked at this in, in the lab, they really are giving this look in response to us. So they don't come up with this look um, based on whether they did something wrong or not. They come up with this look when we approach them with a certain tone or body posture, and then they put it on. It's really a sort of submissive or appeasing look. Like, please don't, (laughs) you know, please don't be angry at me. I don't know why you're angry, but please don't be angry. And it turned out that's when they were doing this look, not when they had, not more often when they had done something allegedly wrong. What I think is interesting about that is we assume they feel guilt because of that look. Well, I can't, I'm not saying they don't feel guilty ever, that they don't have the experience of guilt, but it's presumptive to assume that they do because of that look. There are many ways we, I don't think we can say exactly what the emotional experience is of dogs. And maybe that has to be okay. It's more interesting for me as a researcher and as a person who lives with dogs to say that looks like pride, you know. Finnegan carrying his stick that he's found that's way too big for his mouth, you know, and prancing around. But I don't actually know. And maybe that's also okay.
0: I think it almost has to be okay because we are limited creatures. We're limited by our own our own reality. And this is such a difficult question with animals all the time. In the first, but before, before I talk about the whole question of anthropomorphism, which I really want to get into with you because it's like my favorite topic. I just feel like sometimes I think Rose has that look before I notice the thing that's wrong. <laughs> You're sure that's not the case? Yeah, like no. I come in and she's got that look and I'm then I know something, something went awry when I was gone.
2: Is that possible? I think it is possible. It's also possible that, so she could have already... Anticipated your response, and also it's possible that there's an element of human psychology involved at play here too. Where um, if she has that look and you don't find anything in the house, yeah, then you forget about that case. That's just a normal phenomenon that happens to us. And so, yeah, it does happen. That look does happen when they've done something which we think is wrong, and it also happens when they haven't done anything which we think is wrong. And so, probably their experience is somewhat overlapping but not completely like what we're expecting it is and i actually think that to just drop that need for a second which is i think hard for people that of understanding that it's that we open up the possibility of it being something more interesting than we had imagined at first
0: yeah absolutely i mean the truth is just better than what we make up Mm. regardless it always is but all right, let's talk about anthropomorphism, which is basically what we're circling around here. And I know it, is, it has always been seen as this huge scientific sin, and also just as an excuse for pretending that animals don't have any reality at all. It, it, but it seems obvious. We can't study animals without, in some way, projecting our own experiences onto them. We are who we are. We're limited. And and what this has led to in the past, as as you well know, is believing... Uh, that there's nothing going on with them because we can't really know what's going on with them. We just assume there's nothing going on with them, which has led to all sorts of horrors. But you just point out that anthropomorphism is, you know, kind of inevitable, but you are not willing to give into it because it's so important that we shouldn't assume that they are feeling the same way we are. So uh, this is a terribly asked question, but how do you thread that needle? How do, you, how do you use your own reality to do those projections, which you have to do in order to understand any other creature and yet
2: not overdo it? I mean, I am threading the needle, I think, and my own feelings about it have evolved in the 20 years that I've been you know, doing science. I think I really was raised in the model that although I was very interested and concerned for and felt very highly about non-human animals, I was raised with the idea you have to be objective, you have to be non-anthropomorphic, right? That's just what's handed down. Even though I knew about Goodall, and even though I attributed emotions to my own the animals I lived with. But what I've come to see is that I think it has a role kind of on the way to understanding, So one of the things I think is interesting about studying dogs at this time, when we also, we don't want the lens to just be on dogs, we want the lens to be on all non-human animals, is that dogs are a way in for humans to understand non-human others, it seems to me. And as you say, there's an inevitability to the way we look at the world. We're going to project ourselves into the world. And if dogs are the beneficiary of that gaze, at some level, that's great. We've started looking at other non-humans at all. And that's what I think is the usefulness of the anthropomorphic kind of gesture, perceptual gesture. We're looking at animals. We're like, oh, there's the possibility that there's something there, that there's richness there. It could be just like us. But then once we're there, that's the position where I want to kind of shake things up a little bit and say, ah, but you know... They do have that guilty look and it's interesting. They're very sensitive to our behavior with this look, but it turns out it's not exactly, it doesn't come up exactly when we think. Isn't that potentially more interesting? So then I feel like we have to kind of defamiliarize animals again, once we've started looking at them and say, actually the interest is not that they're just like us. Now that we're looking, the interest is that they're different than we are (laughs) in important ways and maybe more interesting than we are. So I think it gets us part of the way. And then you sort of step back from anthropomorphism and, and realize that there's more complexity. That's what I aim to do and kind of what I try to put out there. And I agree, it's not obvious, right? It's not simple necessarily, but, it's, but people will follow me on that path, even over the course of a conversation at the dog park from, I know everything about what my dog is thinking to like, oh, you know, isn't that interesting? They're in this other world and I'm interested because I already was invested in them as agents who are somewhat similar to me, who love me, who are in my family,
0: yeah, that makes total sense, and the whole problem with being so hostile to anthropomorphism, of course, is because it has it has allowed people to assume that there's nothing going on. so the really important thing is that you start with this presumption that there are is a lot going on. we may not know exactly what it is, so yeah, that's a really good way to of looking at it, and maybe we can find out more about what it is, and maybe we can't. I mean, there are some things we'll never know.
2: Ah, uh, absolutely.
0: Which is frustrating for humans. Humans don't like that.
2: <laughs> you are correct. I I think that's spot on, and I do think we have to be aware of the danger of assuming that because we can't, you know, like describe the whole dog's experience, that there is no experience, right? That sort of weird default. Exactly, and there was, that's nowhere written into being critical of anthropomorphism, that you have to therefore, it's not anthropomorphic or nothing, right? Somehow that was the way it it sometimes winds up, but it, it doesn't have to go like that. So I think that that's, it's a perfectly normal thing to do. And we're, I just want us to acknowledge it and to see what we're doing and awareness of our own kind of tendencies in that direction is also a way to reflect on the appropriateness of that tendency and the suitability of that tendency in different contexts. So I also like to talk about it a lot just to make people aware what they're doing. I think that helps as well.
0: So are, you talked about dogs as the animal that we're most familiar with and therefore can help us think about animals in a different way. Are dogs this gateway species? Do you, do you have that hope that they will lead people to think about animals in general in a new way?
2: You know, my audience is very much a Western audience, but within that, with that caveat, yes, I do. I do very much feel like they're like a gateway animal. They're the ambassador for us thinking about farm animals this way, right? And and in fact, that's the way the research is going. All the kinds of studies that lots of comparative psychologists have done with dogs over the last 20 years are now being done with pigs. They're being done with goats. They're being done with cows and sheep. And dogs are not the only ones who do well at a lot of these tasks, um, who recognize faces of humans, right? Who can distinguish emotional expressions of humans, who have memories for other, you know, conspecific faces in photographs, you know, not, even when they don't see them in person. All these animals are highly intelligent in these ways that we thought were meaningful with dogs. So I think it's going to take a lot more momentum before we feel a as a society, about pigs and goats, the way we feel about dogs, also pigs and goats aren't necessarily good home pets, which is an important distinction to draw. But but I think they, if we care about this other animal, and then we see them in even other animals, that's the same thing that happened with us. We see ourselves in dogs, and that's part of why we care about them. So if we can see dogs in other animals, I feel like that, chain of empathy can go further than just the home, the domicile.
0: Yeah, I I often wonder why, I mean, that's how it happened for me. I mean, how I became interested in animals in general was really because of, I had a dog who was my own dog for the first time as an adult, and, you know, that relationship just led me to think about him, and then it led me to think about dogs, and then it led me to think about animals, and why why... I mean I'm not that special. <laughs> like, what is? And and you're you know you study dog behavior, not human behavior, but in studying dog behavior, you really have to study human behavior a lot. Why why does this co- connection not get made? And and what do we need to do to allow people Some people don't even extend it beyond their own dog to other dogs. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, what is the block? Do you have any idea? That's like a ridiculous question. Like fix the world, Alexandra.
2: (laughs) I think about that a lot, of course. You know, as somebody who, I mean, I think we were on parallel paths a little bit there, right? Looking at the dog in our home was a way to start ruminating about other animals. And why isn't everybody else like that? I mean, I think, frankly, our society and our education system too quickly compartmentalizes things for us and puts dogs in one category and animals you eat in another category and when a child just learns that they learn it from their family they learn it from their school you know they're open before that i think it's very hard to undo and frankly it is in it is rare you are special right there isn't that many people in which it's undone relative to the whole population plenty of people can see food ink and and continue to eat whatever they were eating before. I don't, I don't know how that happens. And I am not a scholar of human psychology, but I do think that the more we kind of look at familiar things in our world, and I consider dogs a very ostensibly familiar concept, the more interesting and complicated it becomes. And maybe one distinction is some people like complicating familiar things and are interested in looking closer and finding out more and saying, oh, look, you know, a fork. I never thought about forks before, but now I realize, you know, they have this long, intrepid history and and I'm I'm interested in other ways I can use them. And it's how are they made? It's just fascinating. Other people are not. They're like, the fork is a fork. I don't want to think about, I don't want to overthink it. At some level, I think that's the division we're dealing with. Not necessarily people who are empathetic and people who are not, but people who want to go past that first pass understanding and people who don't.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point because it certainly isn't, you know, there are many really, really wonderful people who don't get it about animals, uh, but are wonderful in other ways. So yeah, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. Another thing that you, you wrote this unbelievably good chapter on animals in the law. Mm. Oh, thank you. I really loved it. I thought it really it can be understood by anybody, but it really does get into a lot of the details of how awry the law has gone regarding uh, animals. I, I get the feeling, reading it, that that you were kind of shocked when you started to to sit down to figure out what's going on legally. Is that true?
2: Yes. Uh, and by the way, coming from you, thank you very much for that compliment because I am I was fairly naive to the kind of... The strangeness of dogs' position, and you know all non-human animals in the law. I mean, exactly how strange it was, and how twisted the results are when you start out with this, you know, very perfunctory division of all animals into property. So, yeah, I was shocked, and I was finding out about it as I wrote about it. I mean, I knew that ownership was a fraught concept, and I didn't feel that it. Suited me particularly. It wasn't exactly how it described my relationship with dogs, but I hadn't really understood how entrenched it was in the law. So I think this chapter, you are seeing a little bit of my incredulity as I say, oh my goodness, you know. And again, in this other context, there's something that just defies reason. Can't we look at that contradiction between how we think about dogs and how the law is treating them and be surprised and amazed and want to change it? You reader like me who's never thought about this before. So yeah, that's what you saw there.
0: Well, I was, I was glad to see it. I, when you start thinking, you know, of course I don't teach my class in the context of dogs, but in the context of all animals and you kind of see how it all happened because we couldn't do to animals what we do to them, obviously, if we didn't own them lock, stock and barrel and dogs just get, you know, dogs are kind of the one species that's kind of moved away from that in, in, in our real lives. But the rest, we just really do treat as just pure commodities.
2: And yeah, so, so the they, law reflects that. So they really get to be an example of how um, totally bizarre it is, right, to say that. Totally yeah. bizarre. Totally bizarre. And, and it's because they got into that privileged state. So that's great. I mean, if the law changed, I don't think it could just change for dogs. I mean, maybe the first steps would be like this, the new introduction of the consideration of the well-being of a dog in divorce cases in a couple of states in the U.S., that's new, right? Over the last yes. couple of years, in a few states, so that so the dogs are let in. You know, if those if the couple that wanted a divorce, you know, had the ownership of a pot-bellied pig, probably the pig wouldn't be let in under that same clause. But I think the dogs maybe can open the door for us saying, yeah, yeah, you know, this non-human animals don't deserve to be treated like things in this setting and then maybe in another setting and then maybe in more settings and then maybe other animals. I feel like that they can kind of show us the way there.
0: Yeah. I think that's one of the most important questions in changing policy for animals is whether we're going to stop with dogs and cats you know, whether we're going to change things for dogs and cats and and draw the line there. So I think it's something we all have to be thinking about all the time, how to make dogs more of a gateway species. I, I know this is a little bit of a change of subject, but because it's such uh, it's such an important topic and you talk about it in such compelling ways, I really want to get into a little bit about breeds. Mm. Uh, th- I took out this quote, thinking of dogs in terms of breed is limited, limiting, and sometimes dangerous. And can you just expand on how? I mean, I I imagine a lot of people listening to this podcast really don't like the idea of breeds, but you demonstrated to me how completely fucked up the whole thing is. (laughs) So can you just like lay that out? I know it's a long topic, but lay that out a little bit how this happened and why it's so bad?
2: Well, I think to put it bluntly, you know, pure breeding of the dog breeds we know today in 21st century America began in the 19th century as a kind of form of eugenics. It was, let's pick the best examples of these dogs to distinguish them from the riffraff. And then what we're gonna do with them is inbreed them. So we get other kind of carbon copies of that example. So it starts with this, you know, really unadmirable, but at the time, very common idea of finding the best sort of race of dogs. Just like there were people trying to find the best race of humans and distinguish the superior races from inferior races. There were people trying to find the best race of dogs and wanted to improve on the quality of dogs. And then to do that, they chose a biological process, which we now know is very likely to result in genetic abnormalities, which is inbreeding, only breeding with members of the family. So, you know, that's a father breed it, being bred with his daughter or uh, the pup, uh, male pup being bred with his mother. The bitch, as they say. Um, So that is the model for breeding. And then designing the dog to look more like the dog that the particular breeding group, their fancy, found to be appealing. And often that's a look which isn't well supported in the quadrupedal canine body system. For instance, the brachycephalic look, the short-nosed dog look. These are the dogs, I think, who have suffered really the most of all purebred dogs, dogs like the bulldog, dogs like the pug, who were bred over time, over a very short period of time, 120 years, even less, to having a normal face with a long nose, um, to having this very smushed up face, where the skin is kind of rolled on itself, on the face, the nose is very short, it's not pronounced at all, and everything in the face is kind of smushed back. And the whole skull had to change for that to happen. And there are all sorts of problems that those dogs have. I mean, they have ulcerated eyes, they have skinfold dermatitis. They also often can't breathe at all because all of the soft tissue that was pushed back when you shorten that nose, even over just a couple of generations, didn't go away. didn't magically go away, It sort of folded on itself in their esophagus so you know bulldogs are like breathing through a straw basically that's the beginning of the types of things we started to do with dogs i mean i could go on and on and on
0: Yeah, but no i know they're, every single breed has has genetic problems
2: it, it's it's inbred they will yeah. necessarily have genetic problems and then there's a whole nother i think even though when people choose choose a purebred dog now they're not trying to be little eugenicists. now they think they're just trying to get a dog who's predictable in some ways, right? My dog's going to behave in a certain way. I need a dog who's friendly with children. I need a a dog who's going to bark when a strange person comes to the house. And so they get dogs who are ostensibly, you know, act reliably in those ways. And I think that continues to be a problem because dogs don't reliably act like the breed is supposed to act. I mean, that's kind of just a fiction that's perpetuated by you know, the kennel clubs basically. And it's, even this is hard for me to say because, you know, I love dogs. I love purebred dogs and they're beautiful. Just like all dogs. I don't think of a, a purebred dog. I don't look at a purebred dog and think like not interested in you because of you have a really sour no, history behind you. they dogs. <laughs> and the people for the most part who get these dogs just don't know. They just don't know what they're doing. And so you know, people with purebred dogs think I'm shouting at them that I, that I just haven't, I, they don't, I don't know good breeders and so forth. And I, and I just really think the whole conceit is messed up and that unless we acknowledge the like straightforward biology of it, we're headed for a, like a really kind of dystopian future with dogs, especially since we're spaying and neutering all the, all the mutts, all the ones who kind of chose their own partners and are more likely or less likely to be inbred and have those genetic problems. We're making sure they don't have any more. And instead we're making more of these like designed grotesque creatures and they have to live out their shorter and shorter lives, often in some kind of pain, costing their owners, you know, huge amount of money in veterinary bills and a lot of grief when they die young of this entirely avoidable disease. You know, it's, it's just very dystopian if that's where we're going with dogs. So
0: I Well that is, that is where we're going. I mean, hopefully we will stop going there, but at the moment that does seem to be the trend.
2: You know, in the UK, they are ahead of us on this and people who've been advocating for dog welfare in the UK have successfully pushed back against a lot of the breeders and in some some breeds are for, are forbidden to be bred in some places. Um in Europe, some places the breed standard has changed so that what the dog is supposed to look like if it's a member of a breed and they allow a little bit of outbreeding which means you know you let in a dog who's not part of that little familial group and that's going to make the dogs healthier so there are ways even if those are just incremental to improve breeding if you're going to be breeding and a lot of people think you have to be breeding if you're going to sort of fulfill the need for dogs worldwide but the U.S. It's we're really slow on the uptake here. We're not doing really,
0: really. That's hard to believe. Us behind (laughs) on anything. All right, we won't get into that. Yeah, well, it's nice to know that it is possible to breed without inbreeding. But it sounds like what we should call what we do with dogs now is not breeding, but inbreeding. That's what we do. We inbreed them. That's what
2: it should be called. Do you want to get an inbred dog, or you know? And there, there are other ways to do it. You can. And I I think the way for many, 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 many years it used to be done when people had working dogs, they would breed their dog with another dog who was a good working dog in that capacity, or they would let them breed, basically, right? They would set them off together and let them breed. And then you have two dogs who were doing whatever the task is they were doing, unfortunately, mostly chasing foxes or, you know, partridge or something. But that made the dog better at what the person wanted to do with them right as opposed to breeding these dogs who actually are really ill-equipped to sit in apartments all day or homes all day by themselves and also have the genetic problems i'm ranting i'm so sorry but it, i do know
0: <laughs> it, it's it's a well-deserved rant.
2: <laughs> i just got on a little whew, ranting groove there but i think that happens there's a lot of there's a lot of problems <laughs> with the idea but speaking, of speaking
0: before i let you go i I, I, I want to get back to the other topic that you just brought up of leaving your dogs all day in the apartment, because I, I do think that it would be helpful for you. I mean, I, I imagine most of our listeners are, treat their dogs pretty well, but still, we could all use advice about how. What are what are your rules for how to give a dog a really good life, and how close how close are most people getting to it? I expect not close at all.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, again, with everything that w- that we're familiar with. I think even people who are really well-intentioned, even people who are trying could probably do more if they thought about it for their dogs. Um, So leaving their dog alone, I mean, this is not the case now during our global pandemic, but during-
0: Best thing that ever happened to dogs.
2: It's, I mean, there's possible bad side effects, but I won't get into those right (laughs) now. But yes, at least they have companionships because dogs are social creatures and they don't have anything to do all day and so now there is something going on in their lives. So that is amazing. So if you are in a position where you're leaving the house for eight hours, the question is, what is there for your dog to do? Like, your, it's your dog's life. And people will say, oh, you know, they're napping. All day. Yeah, they're napping because there's nothing else for them to do, right? A working dog doesn't spend their entire day napping. They don't need to be napping all day. They're just, they just default to that out of boredom. So. There are lots of types of things. I mean, I think things like um, dog walking and dog daycare services work really well for some people, people who have dogs who are very social, people whose dogs don't have a lot of anxiety, people who have dogs who need a lot of exercise and you know what kind of dog you have, whether it needs a lot of exercise or not, whether they're bouncing off the walls, they need a lot of exercise. Some dogs don't wanna be with other dogs though, so it's not as good a choice taking them with you when you can in a way that doesn't stress them out. I mean, I think we underestimate the times we can take dogs with us, or we can ask to take dogs with us to contexts. I think more workplaces are allowing dogs to come with you. That's great if your dog, I mean, think about who your dog is. Do they like coming with you or is that also stressful? Giving them things to do at home. You know, I, it's, they're simple things. They're, you know, a treasure hunt of treats around the house is a type of thing I like to do for my dogs. They love that. I had, you know, one dog used to wait till I came home to find everything, but she had gone and found where everything was. Mm -hmm. And then when I would return home, she would eat them all up in a, in a flurry. (laughs) So it's the sweetest thing. (laughs) She was taking care of you. (laughs) It's very sweet. And she was very sweet. And but it's the type of thing where there's something happening for her besides just waiting for me. Um, I eventually, you know, with my Finnegan, who's 13, I eventually decided that he would like a dog of his own. Right? He would, <laughs> he would need social. He would like social companionship, and we were able to adopt another dog. If your dog likes the company of other dogs, and you're able to live with a, a second dog, having two dogs together is social companionship where you can't be with them. So it's. And the final thing I'll say is that. Also, if they have something that they do with you that's a, you know, when you come home from leaving them for however long, and of course, they're going to be left for some time in their life, what is it that you do with them? Is it, you know, people sit, plop down on the couch and watch TV or read a book and the dog uh, is ready to go, but you're not ready to go. Then they have to basically settle into that nothing to do again. Do you do an activity with them? Do you make sure that you walk them a couple times a day, which surprisingly, a lot of people do not. I did a lot of nose work games with my dog Finnegan. He loved it. It's just basically, you know, finding, searching and finding scent. And you can do it in a big backyard or in an apartment or for competition. Having that sort of work project that he would do, I think, really organized his day, right? It was something that he could look forward to. It was something he was good at. And It was something which he and I did together away from the other members of the family. Mm -hmm. So just thinking about your dog as an individual who's living life through those hours, I think those are the things that that's the, that's the posture you have to take. And then those are the types of things you can do to give them their best life.
0: Yeah. Great, great advice. And all of the work that you do aids people in following that advice because it helps them know more about what it is going on for dogs and what they like to do and what interests them. So uh, before I, before I say goodbye, I just want to, I read on your Twitter this morning that you just came out with a young reader's version of the book. Is that right?
2: Yes. Yes. It just came out last week of, of our dogs ourselves.
0: And what age group is that uh, geared toward? It's about
2: eight to 12. I'd say my 10 year old edited it for me. So I (laughs) think, but sometimes adults are like, I, you know, I don't like all your Footnotes and stuff, Alexandra. You know, I prefer the young readers, so it's not like it's dumbed <laughs> oh, down. It's just, just, you know. I love a young
0: adult book. <laughs> yeah, so much quicker and uh, yeah, Lee's had a lot of the nonsense. So yeah, that's a great addition and Thank and you. because that's a perfect age to be uh, really bonding with your dog and
2: and thinking about animals, you know, and thinking about who animal lives are. Yeah,
0: seriously, because your book does it's about dogs, but it's about animals. And then it's about dogs and it's about animals. So that's perfect. Well, thanks so much for sharing all this. I could talk to you all day mm, uh, because it's about dogs. Uh, and that's the thing I like to talk about the most, but uh, I think I have to let you go now, but thanks so much for joining us today.
2: It's, it's always a pleasure, Marianne. Thank you.
0: Did you know that you can dedicate a podcast episode to someone you love? For $200, you can not only honor a loved one, human or non, but at the same time support Our Hen House's efforts to change the world for animals. As a bonus, we'll throw in a one-year flock membership. Our Hen House is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we rely on contributions to support our efforts to change the world for animals. We've been on the air every single week without missing one since January 2010. For more information on how to donate an episode and support vital independent media, please visit OurHenHouse.org slash donate. Anxiety is rising. COVID-19, boost your health with beef. Yep. <laughs> okay. Uh, actually, this is a column by Amanda Radke for BeefMagazine.com. And I kind of agree with her uh, initial premise, and that is there's been a whole lot of information given out on how to reduce the spread of the virus and masks and social distancing and hand-washing, but there hasn't been much emphasis on diet. So I kind of uh, agree with that. I don't agree with her recommendations, which of course is eat beef, eat beef, eat beef. But uh, I do agree that there could be more emphasis on people eating uh, healthy. She is pointing out that Americans are receiving all this conflicting information about which foods are actually the most healthful. You know, there really isn't that much. I mean, everybody pretty much agrees that fruits and vegetables are the most healthful, except there is some important research, she points out, such as the white paper published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology that shows the benefits of saturated fats in the diet. She's very upset that that's being ignored. You know, you can pretty much get support for any nutritional... uh, Proposal, but uh, you know, really. She, the thing she's particularly concerned about is the failed recommendations coming from the dietary guidelines for Americans, which I agree are failed because they're not nearly strong enough in telling people to avoid eating the enormous, enormous quantities of dead animals that Americans eat. She's quoting this this guy, um Don Lyman, who wrote something for International Business Times and, what he said is, "quote in short, we could avert literally millions of fatalities each year simply by adopting better nutritional standards, and we can start by destigmatizing animal-derived foods." Uh, yeah, I don't think so, Don. <laughs> I don't think so. In the first place, people are still eating cartloads of dead animals, and it ain't making them any healthier. And in the second place, I don't know what I don't remember what the second place was. You're just wrong, Don. So, as as Amanda points out, we could debate the effectiveness of masks and social distancing. Actually, let's stop debating the effectiveness since that's pretty well established. But instead, for myself and my family, we are focused on hand-washing, drinking water, getting adequate rest, soaking up some sunshine. In the first place, just do masks and social distancing because these other things are fine, but they're not going to prevent the spread of coronavirus, but I'm getting off topic. Uh, soaking up some sunshine and fueling our bodies with brain-enriching, muscle-building, immunity-boosting meat, dairy, and eggs. Uh, yeah, good luck with that. I drives you crazy, right? All right, here's a column. There's just a little thing in here. It's not even that relevant, but I needed to point it out, so you'll just have to put up with me. This is the Meet Your Markets column on Meeting Place. Uh, Dureco, you know, I'm not even sure whether that's how you pronounce that, Direco. And more. What does it mean for family ranchers and farmers? So he's talking about these huge storms that hit Iowa, destroyed loads and loads of crops. I've also heard them called inland um, hurricanes. Terrible, huge winds. I mean, Iowa really has been devastated. And um, and he is using this to point out something that I completely agree with. I'm agreeing with everybody today. Have you noticed that that uh, there's been too much consolidation? It, within the cattle beef sector. I don't know why he's focusing specifically on the cattle beef sector, but it, it's dominated by four huge meat companies who have recently had their fair share of criticism re- due to their response to COVID-19 to protect their workers. And then, he's, then he says some good stuff about them. I'll skip that. And uh, this is what he's he's upset about, all this consolidation. And he thinks it's one of the reasons that farms are in trouble. And, you know, one of the ways they're in trouble now are these huge uh, windstorms. And, and if we only had a better system with smaller farmers, he thinks it would do a lot of good for, for keeping these farms out of bankruptcy. So, you're wondering why I'm telling you this. Th- because of this quote. He talks about uh, in- integration and why it's a problem. And then he says, such a controlling, consolidating model has its roots in socialism, and it's not the way our country's independent entrepreneurs and ranchers who began this beef industry fostered its growth. It must be changed or the outside forces, be they nature-made or human-made, will force its demise. Socialism? This isn't socialism. This is monopoly. <laughs> like what? I, I'm, people confuse me. They really do. This is not socialism. If you're against monopoly, say you're against monopoly. And uh, if you think we should have more antitrust uh, legislation and enforcement... Say it, because that's what we need here, aside from the fact that we also need for them to stop murdering animals. Oh, let's see. Beware your insurers. This is an interesting column from the Legally Speaking column, also in Meeting Place by Sean Stevens. And he's talking about recalls. And he points out that recalls of, you know, when they recall some food product, are, quote, nearly impossible to avoid. That's an interesting confession, isn't it? Like he's basically admitting that they're just kind of built in, even for people who are doing, you know, everything they can, there's no way to avoid them. For this reason, the general mantra in the food industry has always been that it is not a matter of if, but rather a matter of when your first or next recall will occur. And, you know, just remember that a recall is when these products have already gotten out into the marketplace and they have to be pulled because they're capable of killing people. We're making people very ill. So, you know, there are bigger problems about recalls than just uh, whether somebody, some food manufacturer, meat fan- manufacturer, uh, gets in trouble. They, they can kill them. Like the, the fact that they have to be done means that there are dangerous foods out there. Well, we're ignoring that part. And he's disappointed at how ineffective everybody's recall insurance is. You know, I have to admit... I never really thought about the fact that, of course, they all have insurance to cover them for this. It doesn't really hurt them. It hurts the insurance companies. But interestingly, he's pointing out these insurance companies are getting tougher and tougher. And among the reasons they've, they've uh, mentioned that they're refusing to pay for various recalls are that the insured simply could should have, quote, done more to avoid the circumstances leading up to the recall of its products. The insured failed to immediately contact the insurer's appointed crisis counsel once it became clear that a recall would be required. Well, these seem like, yeah, these seem actually like pretty valid reasons. And they're getting upset that the insurers are not covering their asses for when these inevitable things happen where they end up harming people. You know, did it ever occur to these people that their business model just doesn't work? That's it for this week's Rising Anxieties.
1: Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and you're able in these difficult times, you can support us by joining our flock at OurHenHouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at, at @ourhenhouse. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Headhouse as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, and to composer Michael Herron for the music. Thanks to Podcast Haven for their work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez. We will be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook group on Tuesday for your bonus content and join us on Fridays for Flock Fridays, where we do some really cool Zooms that you'll want to join. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Jasmine Singer. Be safe out there, social distance, stay home, wash your hands, and listen to podcasts.